What happened to the anti-war movement? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Fabio Rojas. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Fabio Rojas. Fabio is Professor of Sociology at Indiana University, Bloomington. He previously served as the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Scholar in Health Policy Research at the University of Michigan. His research has been published in a variety of academic journals, such as the American Journal of Sociology, Social Forces, and the Journal of Black Studies. His first book, From Black Power to Black Studies, How a Radical Social Movement Became an Academic Discipline, was published in 2007. And in 2018, he also published the book, Theory for the Working Sociologist. He also blogs regularly at orgtheory.net and is the co-editor of Context Magazine, a publication of the American Sociological Association. And of course, he also co-authored the book Party in the Street, the Anti-War Movement and the Democratic Party after 9-11, and it will serve as the foundation for our discussion today. Fabio, welcome to The Curious Task. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. So Fabio, in each episode, we start with a question and go wherever the conversation takes us. Our question today is, what happened to the anti-war movement? And to answer that question, we will trace the movement's progress and what happened. But before we get right to that... Let's talk a bit about your book and the research that sets the stage for this conversation. So, so let's start by first getting our audience up to speed. Of course, I had the opportunity to read the book, but not everyone listening has. Let's set up some framework. Can you take some time to explain why it's important to distinguish between a political party on the one hand and a social movement on the other? We'll get to the party in the street in a sec, but let's start one on the one hand and one on the other first. Oh, sure. That's a really great place to start. Uh, when you think about politics in democratic societies, uh, it come, politics comes in many different flavors. Uh, one flavor is the person in office. So you look at uh, Justin Trudeau or Donald Trump, and you say that person got elected and they have some power and they're going to try to push the policies they want. Then there's a group of people who are trying to get elected and they're uh, more formally organized. And we call those political parties. That's when you pull people together and you say, OK, we're officially a group. And this is our uh, flavor. This is the thing that we're serving on the menu, so to say. So in Western democracies, we often see, uh, you know, uh, labor parties of one sort or another. We tend to see more socially conservative parties. In some places in the world, you might see classical liberal parties or green parties. But in other words, when you gather voters together and politicians together into a big bundle, they're called a political party. And in some countries, they're officially part of the system, but in the United States, they are not officially part of the system. They're actually outside of government, and they're trying to uh, get into government. But then there are some forms of politics which are kind of, uh, they kind of operate in an informal way, a contentious way. They're fighting the system. They're yelling at it in some way. And we call those groups social movements or protest movements. And uh, another kind of politics that you that's probably important to keep in mind is what political scientists call the interest group. And so you can think of these different forms of politics as kind of uh, having different modes of operation. So we're actually in office. That's one way of doing politics. And political scientists will call that the party in office, right? And then, you know, the gathering of the people, you know, uh, into one banner, they call that the party in the electorate. Right. Like we're trying to get all these people together so they all vote one way. And then there are interest groups that exist independently of that. They're trying to get their one thing passed. So it could be like the gun lobby, the tax lobby, environmentalists, whatever interest group you talked about. Then there are some interest groups 
uh, that really kind of exist uh, in tension with the mainstream of the um, of the party. And uh, we call uh, the mainstream of government, we call those protest movements. And in the book, we call those, we call that the party in the street, right? Like there are people in the street, they're acting. Sometimes they like the party, sometimes they not. Sometimes they like elected officials and they don't. And so when you think about politics, think about that spectrum of everybody from the person in office all the way to the person in the street and everything in between. So we talked about political parties, which I think is, is, is fairly straightforward. But when we talk about social movements, you just sketched it there. But this is, as you said, everything from very organized action, like a lobby group or an interest group, right down to someone who could just be upset about something and they want to join a movement for a variety of different reasons, right? Not everyone has the exact same sort of reasons or moralizing about why they would want to be, or at least why they identify with a certain movement. Correct. Correct. That's right. And, um, you know, politics uh, does exist at those different levels that you're talking about. So for example, political parties, uh, you know, they exist on kind of a very large scale, right? right? So they exist, um, you know, like as groups that have millions of members that have representatives in parliament or Congress. And then a political party can also exist at the dinner table when just somebody says, I love the Republican Party. That's who I personally identify with. And so that's the interesting thing about politics, which is that it really saturates all these different levels of our lives. So as we move forward in our conversation today, if you want to leave sort of our listener something in the back of their head to, to consider what the party in the street is, what, how can we sort of sum it up? I know it's, v- it's very detailed and your book goes into this, but sort of like that one sentence for everyone to keep in, in the back of our mind. Well, what's the party in the street? Then? Yeah. So the party, the party in the street idea is actually very simple. All it means is that when your guy is not in power, when your political party is not in power, sometimes you take it to the street. And that's a way for you to get influence, for you to get your voice heard when your people are not in office. And, and as you note in the book, the, the, the awareness of the distinction between a movement on the one hand, uh, a movement or an interest, I should say, and you know formal actors and political parties and groups, this is something that American history has been aware of and people have taken note of it in history. It's not something new. Uh, and, and although party politics has changed a lot, in your book, you sort of trace the different stages and the different forms this may have taken, but, but it's always sort of been similar is what I understood from the book. Yeah, that's right. So I always like to remind people that social movements created the United States. Uh, we literally, we literally had a revolutionary movement um, in other places, there have been other types of revolutionary movements that have created governments like the French Revolution or the Islamic government of Iran. We can think about the Chinese and, and uh, Soviet state in Russia. Um, so movements are everywhere and they're actually kind of a normal part of politics. And then the book focuses on peace movements in particular. And there's always been people who said, you know, we don't need to go to war. We have too many weapons. You know, uh, we're killing people unnecessarily in war. There's always been pushback against war throughout all of American history. And so we see uh, the anti-Iraq war movement, which is the focus of the book, as one um, chapter in that history that needs to be analyzed. And just for a bit more context before we jump into that analysis, I, pu- I pulled sort of three terms I think it's important for people to keep in mind as we before we get into the meat of the matter. Can you can you comment and speak a little further on the concepts and, and why they're important to your methodology in the book of identity, intersectionality, and identity shifts? I know these, you go into this in the book a, oh, a little sure. bit, but let's start with identity and, and kind of see how you f- see that as a sociologist and why that's important to our discussion. Right. So uh, for a sociologist, identity roughly means what category do you associate yourself with? And what ideas do you associate yourself with? Um, and identity can be very complex. So for example, you could be male or female, you could be transgendered, you could be black or white, you could be liberal or progressive, you could be radical, 
You could identify with your job. You can say, I'm a gas station attendant. You know, I have pride in that. I have civic pride. I identify as a New Yorker or Bostonian. So identity has all these different dimensions. And one very important thing about modern political identity, especially in the United States, is that people are very strongly identifying with one party over the other. And they really uh, let that aspect of their identity drive their behavior. Um, And then um, that's part one. Part two is realizing that your political identity uh, could be attached to two different um, forms of politics. One is the party and the other is the social movement. And they're very different things. They're very different things. So, for example, if the party decides that we no longer care about the war issue, we care about health care or we no longer care about health care, we're about the economy. Then if you attach yourself to the party, you're going to move. You're going to move. Uh, but that's different than the activist who says, you know, year in and year out, this is my issue. I'm going to stick with this issue. That's what I really care about. And identity shifts are important because uh, basically that's the crux of the matter uh, that comes up in the book. And the book asks the question, you know, why did a lot of people stop showing up to the anti-war movement? And we argue that basically there was kind of um, two identities which came together during the Bush years. And so the identity of being the anti-war activist or anti-war protester coincided with the act, the identity of being a Democrat. But then when Obama came into power, those identities started to uh, depart from each other. And then people then uh, shifted from the anti-war identity to uh, being a Democrat. And, um, you know, you can tell me how much this uh, plays out in Canada, but I can tell you in the U.S. that we're highly polarized in the sense that once you decide to be a Republican or Democrat, it's very kind of stick, it's a sticky identity. You stick with it and you use that identity to focus all your attention and uh, political behavior. So let's drill down a little further now. We're going to jump right into discussing and tracing a bit of a timeline of the anti-war movement. And again, we encourage everyone to go and purchase Fabio's book. We want everyone to check that out. There's more than enough information there. We definitely can't cover it all here, but we can at least trace sort of the high level findings and, and the discussion in the book. So let's let's start by talking about the anti-war movement on the one hand, and we'll leave the Democratic Party on the other hand sure. for, for just a second. So this, of course, this, this anti-war movement right after 9-11, as your book shows, this wasn't just some sort of uh, social group that met in a hotel and said, we're a little upset about this. This was a big thing. People really identified with this. Uh, can you just sort of like sketch that out for uh, sketch that out for us? So it's hard for people to cast their mind back sometimes. Right, exactly. And even at the time, I think people didn't quite appreciate the size of the movement. But roughly speaking, what happened was that the 1990s were kind of a low point for peace politics. Um, it, it, the reasons are pretty clear. You know, there was the end of the Berlin Wall. The Iron Curtain had fallen. Uh, you know, people really thought, man, this is the time to do disarmament to uh, pull troops back or to cut back on military budgets. Like we no longer are fighting the Russians. It's going to be all right. Um, The wars that the U.S. were were, were involved in at that point, like the bombing of Kosovo, uh, the invasion of Haiti, Haiti, these are relatively short-lived and small actions compared to, say, World War II or the Vietnam War. Right. And so, uh, you know, for your listeners who may not be familiar with the Vietnam War, I think something like uh, one million American males had served in Vietnam at some point. So that tells you kind of what a massive military mobilization it was. And so it's not surprising that the anti-Vietnam War movement would be equally big, right? Like it was a very big war, a big uh, shifting of people overseas, and then a big pushback domestically. But then if you look at Haiti, you look at, you know, the Panama invasion, uh, you know, Grenada, and, you know, that was the 1980s. 
you see, these are very small actions, right? So they're not going to generate quite the big pushback that you'd expect. And then 9-11 happens. And then what happens is there's a period of about two years from uh, September 11th in 2001 up to March of 2003. And that's when essentially the Bush administration made it very clear that uh, they were going to invade Iraq. Uh, and we could talk about the politics of, of, of that, why that is, you know, the reason behind the invasion. But the point is they pretty much broadcasted to the world very quickly. Yes. Uh, there was about three or four weeks where uh, there was there were military reprisals against the Afghan Afghan government. And then when the Afghan government collapsed very quickly after about a month or two of fighting with U.S. forces, um, it became very clear that they were uh, going to continue the fight into Iraq. Right. And so that allowed the anti-war movement to kind of get a lot of time to prepare and to mobilize. And by the time of February of 2003 rolls around, uh, we're seeing protests in the streets of millions of people around the world. Uh, and when I say millions, that is not an exaggeration. Like most uh, observers who try to count or estimate the crowd sizes that millions of people, um, you know, is global. Um, there was a wave of protest called you know, the world says no to war. And that uh, chain of protests, you know, were in all the major cities like Tokyo, Berlin, London, Paris, Madrid, and all the major American cities. So you could think of uh, those two years from 2001 to 2003 being um, the kind of windup. And then the war happens. And then people protest more and more and more. And then they reach a high point in 2006. And then the protest uh, size starts declining. The number of people who start showing up to these events starts declining. And just to give you a sense of how uh, how uh, much it shrank, how much the anti-war movement shrank, when I did a field site visit, I went to a protest in Chicago, and I think I think it was in 2009 or 2010, uh, in front of the Water Tower, which is kind of a historic landmark in Chicago. Uh, when I went to a protest there in 2004, 2005, uh, there were five or 10,000 people on that street. When I went there in 2010, there were about 24. And I use that number because I actually counted. It was like 24 or 30 people. It was like a very small number, group of people. It was literally one person with a bullhorn, yeah. a couple of people handing out flyers. And notice that was a time when there, there were still tens of thousands of troops in Iraq, you know, in 2009, 2010. And then there was also the escalation. Remember that uh, Obama de-escalated in Iraq, but escalated in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. So you think like... But the point is that was a done deal. The the anti-war movement disappeared, and we have not seen a revival of it since then. Right, and, and you're talking about how huge the anti-war movement was, especially right after 9-11. And I think it's very important for us to stop and take a moment to also quickly point out that, and your book does this as well, that you know the way people identified with this issue was not simply I am against the war in Iraq. It, it was that was part of it, of course. But there was a chart, I think, and I didn't copy it here, and I kind of regret doing that now. But there's a lot of reasons people identify with the movement, right? Some were just a pure moral stance. Some was religious stances. Right. Some was, of course, the war itself they objected to. Some people thought it was bad politics. But it seems that this movement brought together a variety of different people who, at the end of the day, disagree with the war. And I think that's very interesting. Yeah, no, that's right. And one of the things that we did that's really the uh, foundation of this research project was we collected data on 10,000 street protesters. We actually went to about eight or nine years worth of protests from 2004 to about 2011. So that might be seven years, actually. And we uh, you know, went this year in and year out. There was, I think, only one year where we didn't have the funds for it. But otherwise, we went uh, to, to dozens of protests all across the U.S. in the Northeast, the South, 
uh, the Midwest and the West. Uh, we got tons of data. And one of the questions we asked was just, just write down in a sentence or two why you're here. And you're exactly correct that the reasons are all over the place. And uh, that's really speaking to people's identities that, you know, this uh, anti-war issue is providing an anchor for other kind of progressive people to come out. And more importantly for the book, for Democrats to come out. And it was an anchor for Democrats early on. And then when Obama wins, the Democrats stopped showing up. And that's a very striking finding uh, in the data. And why not just segue right into that? So we talked about, as I said before, that's the social movement on the one hand. Let's talk a bit about, and you can set up the context for us, the Democratic Party just in its own right, in, in, in a narrow sense. The party itself, they were in an interesting position right after 9-11, of course, namely for a political party out of power. Right. Yeah. And it really helps to understand the broader trajectory of uh, party politics in the U.S., and the anti-war movement, which is that the anti-war movement has never lived until recently inside of just one party. Hmm. Um, so there have been periods where it's kind of a more of a Democrat thing and other periods of history is more of a Republican thing, like during the 1930s. But then starting in the 1970s up until the present, the anti-war uh, stream in American thought has really been attached to the Democratic Party. So uh, that's the kind of basic setup. And then 9-11 uh, happens, and it happens at a period which is very interesting, where Republicans, I believe, actually had uh, the White House and both branches of Congress. Right. So they had uh, majorities everywhere. And then this horrible terrorist attack happens. And then people ask the question, you know, what are you going to do? And a lot of Democrats, even though their party contains the anti-war wing in the U.S., um, they were afraid to take the anti-war position for fear of being uh, seen as unpatriotic. And this is a constant issue in peace politics, which is that people who oppose war are often tarred as you know, traitors or weak or unpatriotic in some way. Right. And so this is why you get people like Joe Biden, who's like, yeah, I did vote for it, but I didn't really mean it. Uh, Hillary Clinton famously saying she voted for it, but she didn't think they were really going to go to war. I think technically she said that uh, you know, she voted for uh, Bush uh, trying to intervene in Iraq without going to war. It's like she tried to walk down that middle. Right. Uh, so a lot of uh, Democratic politicians actually, uh, you know, voted for the authorization of force a resolution in Congress. Um, and so that's what happens early on. So they kind of get on board with the war. And then as the war kind of drags out, and this is very typical of wars, that when they drag out, then people start losing enthusiasm. Then there's an election in 2006 where essentially the Republicans get wiped out of Congress. Right. And and the war was the issue for about one or two years. So for but maybe about from 2006 to about early 2008, before the recession hits, uh, the war is the number one issue in American politics. We know that because in surveys, when we ask people or rank the issues, what issue do you care about the more, the most? It's the war, which is like the big issue for both the re Democratic and Republican parties. Also, in terms of uh, primary politics, uh, people who voted uh, for Obama were the most likely to say that war was their number one issue, right? So this is the issue that initially allowed Obama to get the upper hand against Hillary Clinton in the Democratic primary. People forget that. But you know, because we forget that because another issue came to eclipse the war, and that was the recession. Right. So we had the war. And then what happens is that the recession wipes out the war as an issue. And then uh, you see the decline of the anti-war movement. Uh, and then the Democratic Party holds power for two years. The Tea Party turns around. Healthcare politics kicks in. And then the war issue gets really pushed down the list uh, quite a bit. 
And then that's kind of the story of the book, which is to kind of uh, explain the trajectory of the war, given what happened in elections and what the rest of the political system was doing. And I actually think that's an excellent place to take our break. So we're going to do so right now. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I speak with Fabio Roas. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Rosa Pagliarello, Sabine Elchidiak, and Travis Smith. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Fabio Rojas today. So, Fabio, before the break, we were talking about how there was sort of this bit of a lineup between the anti-war movement and basically the Democrats coming to power in in, in 2006. I mean, of course, this probably coincided with a lot of anti-Bush and anti-Republican sentiment as well. I, I think I, I remember there was a picture in your book, um, and, and I'm not even that old, but it felt like it aged me. Obama was speaking at, I think, like an anti-war rally in 2002 or something like that. So like, it, it really shows that there was sort of this... Um, as I guess between that 2002 to 2006 period, there was a semblance of like that Democratic Party having that issue and speaking out on the war and the social movement as well. And then as you were mentioning right before we went to the break, after the 2006 congressional elections, it actually didn't get better. I mean, one would think if they were sketching out their perfect history, that once some of the people they depended on for the anti-war movement got in power, things would change. But as a matter of fact, your book notes, and I quote, At exactly the time when anti-war voices were most well-poised to exert pressure on Congress, movement leaders stopped sponsoring lobby days. From 2000, and then you go on to say, from 2007 to 2009, the largest anti-war rallies shrank from hundreds of thousands of people to thousands and then to only hundreds. So, so, so what happened here? The Democrats took the majority in both houses. This is the idea. I'm sure the anti-war movement or a lot of them were thinking, we got these people in power. Now's the chance. They're in power. What happened to this issue between 2006, uh, which I should say from 2007 to 2009, as your book notes? Yeah, that's a really great question. And that really motivates the main empirical puzzle. Like if you were to ask, what is the, what is the big thing the book is trying to explain? It's the fact that when they had a uh, power, when Democrats had power, they took the uh, foot off the pedal. They took the uh, foot off the pedal in, in order uh, in terms of pushing their issue. And the photograph that you mentioned is from a very famous speech that Obama made. So I don't know how well-known the speech is in other countries, but in the U.S., there's a speech where he says something like, you know, I'm opposed to dumb wars, I'm opposed to unnecessary wars. And he would always point to that speech and say, I was against the Iraq war when Hillary Clinton was voting for it. And that picture you're talking about is that speech. We found a photographer who was there that day and captured that picture and uh, we interviewed the people who invited Obama to um, to actually uh, give that speech. And I think that speech is a really great moment where the identity of the activist and the identity of the party participant come together. Right. Because at that point, uh, you know, uh, basically Republicans had owned the war, like they were creating the war, they were ready to set it up. And then they had this rally in Chicago and they're like, we need a young Democrat. And I think I, I can't remember who it was, but there was somebody else they were going to invite, but that person didn't make it. Uh, and they're like, well, what about this, uh, you know, state senator named Barack Obama? What if we invite him? And then that's where he gave that famous speech. Um, and so uh, and so then the question is, what happens? 
right. what happens later. Well, there's a couple of levels of what happened. One is that Obama himself, even if you read the, when you read the text of the speech very carefully, this is very clear. He says he is not against war in general. He's against bad wars. So he makes it very clear that he believes in just war theory. Like he believes some wars are justified, but they have to be well thought. You have to try to minimize casualties. It has to be for good reason. And so from that perspective, he thought the Bush war, the Iraq war was bad and the Afghan Afghanistan war was good. I just want to note that that's very key, that uh, although Obama overlapped with the anti-war movement, it's hard to call him anti-war in that case, just anti that war. That's exactly right. He he would even say that many times. He's Right. And he says, I'm not against all wars, but I'm just against unjustified damaging wars. And so that's issue number one, which is the person the Democrats chose was not consistently anti-war, like I say, Dennis Kucinich or somebody like that. Instead, it was somebody who's just like, no, I'm just against Bush's war, right? That's issue number one. Then issue number two, um, there's a lot more continuity in foreign policy than a lot of people uh, might recognize or might remember. And this is something we take pains to explain in the book, which is that it is very rare for an American president to completely drop all the wars that the previous president had started. And there's a lot of continuity And we can dig into it a little bit. So, for example, there's this idea called the water's edge. In other words, you and me, we can fight over politics. But when we talk about foreign conflict and get into fights with other countries, we have to stand together. Like we're all Americans, even though we may be Democrats or Republicans, we're still all Americans. We have to have the same policy towards Russia and get a consensus around that policy rather than argue about it. So that's another thing, which is the Democrats just naturally are going to try to continue a lot of the policies that um, that other that uh, the Republicans have started. We also talk about evidence from speeches made by the Clintons and specifically Al Gore uh, talking about the need to uh, you know increase sanctions against Iraq um, to uh, carry out armed conflict against Iraq. So there is even that a big chunk of the uh, Democratic Party that was actually quite comfortable with the Iraq war. Right. And then finally, there's the tension in identity, which is you're, you're yelling against the war and then your guy wins. Something has to give. Right. Something has to give. And so one of the things that we suggest in the book and we argue for is that political identity is stronger for parties than it is for movements. Like the number of people who say, I care about more about this issue than I care about the party is, is small compared to people who believe it the other way around. Right. So when people ask themselves the, the question, who am I? It, it, it often is not, I'm an anti-war person that votes Democrats. I'm a Democrat and. Right, exactly. And so this explains one of the things about American politics that always shocks people or politics in any country for that matter, which is uh, people say, you know, um, uh, you know, um, why is it that political parties drift from issue to issue? Right. Like, why are they picking up one issue and then dropping this another issue? Or why are these two issues conflict? Well, the answer is that a party is a pragmatic coalition of people that bands together to get political power. So just naturally, if you just put it that way, you say a party is a coalition of people coming together, then, of course, some issues are going to drop out over time. Right. And that's different than the activists. The social movement person is like, no, no, I really care about segregation or I care about abortion. Like, that is my thing. And. I don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican. I still want my policy uh, to be enacted, right? And so that's that's what happened, which essentially the Democratic Party made a choice. 
they said our new issue is the economy and healthcare reform. That's going to be our issue with Obama's president. And please, would everybody tone it down when it comes to Obama? Right, we'll leave the hope and change for the domestic stuff. The the war stuff will be a continuation. Everyone go back yeah, to your business. Yeah, and 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 just one more comment on that: that the that the uh, it gets even more complicated when you actually look at Bush's policy, because in two thousand six, it was very clear that Bush wanted to withdraw from Iraq, and there were there was even a sense within the Republican Party in the White House that the war had taken its course. It was time to cut bait and run. And so that's why in 2006, the uh, Bush administration um, signed something called the Status of Forces Agreement. And what that, allowed, what that did is it created a framework for the withdrawal of U.S. forces. But it was started in the Bush administration, right? Something definitely lost to common history. When you think of who the war president was versus the guy trying to fix it in the mainstream sort of idea. You're right, right, exactly. And so it's a lot more complicated. So probably uh, Democrats who are in power who are like, we're just going to try to continue the war under the framework for eventual withdrawal that Bush had kind of set up. We're comfortable with that. Uh, but could you please, activists, please stop talking about the war so we can get on with healthcare reform and other issues? So uh, I guess a lot of this, you know, and, and again, the years were so that 2007 to 2009 period, a lot of this dying off of the movement was really just sort of a confluence of many factors, not the least of which was the fact that the politicians that a lot of the movement was supporting weren't really the anti-war politicians at the end of the day. Yeah, that's really correct. And you can you can see the uh, decline. So as Democrats get more power, you can see the the uh, the reversal of the movement. So when they, uh, you know, uh, so in 2006, when they win Congress, Right. You can see the first big drop off. And then they win the presidency. You see the next big drop off. And by 2012, you know, even though there are thousands of troops in Afghanistan and some of them even there to this day, uh, you know, the, the movement is essentially extinct for the time being. Um, and and you're right about the uh, politicians themselves, which is, you know, Hillary Clinton made it very clear that she really supported the Iraq war the whole way and only grudgingly admitted something like, well, maybe it wasn't done well. Or Bush didn't do it right. But if she had been in charge, she would have done it right. And then for Obama, the issue was, I'm told I'm, he's a total believer in the Afghan war, not a believer in the Iraq war, but he would still try to work within the status of forces agreement framework to continue the Bush policies and not have it be too disruptive in his opinion. So, so yeah, and I guess it's kind of cool the way we're doing this actually towards the end of our conversation here, we're kind of re reversing. We, we started with the movement first and then the party. And now at the end of the story, we did the party first. So now let me turn us back to the movement then. So we can definitely understand why certain politicians weren't as eager to sort of pursue the, the anti-war efforts or end the war in Iraq as much as they should have in some people's eyes, et cetera. But what, what about the, the, the movement itself? One of the questions your book raises rhetorically and then goes into discussing is why did so many anti-war activists also stop fighting? before they achieve their goal? Like, is it, is it just, again, because what we really had is a mosaic of different agendas and identities coming together that sort of fell apart from the movement's perspective? Or Yeah, there's, there's a couple of key take-home points. One is that when Bush was gone, then the focus of the anti-war movement really disappeared. So that, that, that's issue number one. Uh, number two, there was internal pressure within the party to let up on Obama in terms of being a target of protests. Right. So remember that remember that that progressive activists will actually protest a president if they want to, like they protested uh, Lyndon Johnson, for example, during the Vietnam War. And that was one of the reasons he decided not to run for reelection, which is that he got so much flack from a progressive activist in the party that he thought it would be hard to win. Um, but and they could have done the same thing for Obama. They could have just said, 
you know, we're going to protest until there are literally zero American troops in Afghanistan and Iraq, right? Uh, but they intentionally chose not to do it because they didn't want to, because people in the party didn't want to jeopardize their new issues, which was, you know, uh, you know, the, uh, the bailout, you know, the uh, toxic asset, uh, the talk came in the Bush, uh, the end of Bush, but uh, all these uh, relief measures for the recession and uh, healthcare reform, the Affordable Care Act. And so the message in the party was very clear, which is, you know, just please to- tone this down. You know, we have to fight Republicans because Republicans want to fight us on health care reform. And the war issue just completely disappeared. And then also the uh, belief that a lot of people genuinely held, and this is part of identity, which is that even though the Obama did actually continue many of Bush's policies, uh, probably the average activist just thought that, OK, he's not perfect, but he's definitely not Bush. He's right. reversing a lot of Bush's policies. And that's part of the importance of thinking about identity, which is that when you believe in your party a lot, and you have that degree of par- uh, 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 identification with the party, you're willing to interpret things in a much more favorable light for your guy right. than for the other guy. Or in other words, if, if you if your anti-Bush sentiment was stronger than your anti-war sentiment at the time, that's a whole other discussion. Right, exactly. And yeah, and that comes up in some of the data that you talked about, and that when you survey people and ask them what issue really motivated them to show up to protest, of course, the number one issue is always the war. That's always the number one issue. But the fascinating thing is the number two issue. That early on in the study, we discovered the number two issue was anti-Republican sentiment. Right. And then that becomes like issue number 10 or 12 by the end of the movement. Like clearly the focus of anger had moved on and then other issues have kind of, kind of uh, taken its place. I guess that's sort of where we get back to the idea that if so, what someone thinks of what they're identifying with sort of trumps what the reality could be. That is to say that right. if you in your head have already decided that the Republicans are, are the war party and these are the people that that did these bad things I don't like and that's fueling your anti-war sentiment, when the Democrats get in, even if they continue the policy, it's, well, I'm not part of the end, uh, of the pro-war party, so it's being taken care of, in other words. Yeah, I think that's a very uh, charitable uh, view, which is, you know, people do trust their leaders on some level. Mm-hmm. And they think, well, okay, I'm a Democrat, you know, uh, I, I, I'm, not a, I'm not for the war. And I, I hope that, you know, Obama is at least trying his hardest, right? And, you know, and your guy, you tried to really be nice towards that guy. Like, okay, maybe he can't withdraw perfectly. It's really complicated. Right. And uh, basically, and that's how partisan identity works, that you give the benefit of the doubt to people on your team, but people from the other team are horrible human beings. Uh, and you don't kind of give them the same level of scrutiny uh, that you would uh, for the other team. And as, the, and as the sort of tribalization of politics increases, that sen- those sentiments also increase too. Right, exactly. And, th- that's a bit, and that's a very interesting thing about anti-war politics today, which is, as I noticed, like, it, it was um, maybe nonpartisan or floated between parties, but now it's like fixed within one party. Right. And uh, there are, you know, like, you know, there are like anti-war libertarians and some conservatives who are against the war, but they're, uh, according to the polling data, a very small fraction of Republicans. While it's a big fraction, not a majority, but still a pretty big fraction of people who would be pretty anti-war within the Democratic Party. Right. So the anti-war group just like very much moved into um, into one party to stay there. And so it has to 
fight for attention with the debt with the party identity. And I guess I guess in your view, is this sort of a symptom of what we call the combination of identity and politics so strongly, which is ultimately identity politics as a term? Is that is that that is that strengthening? Is that is that what's causing this? Uh, yeah. So usually when people say identity politics, they usually use a, diff- a different phrase. Uh, so in the states, when we say identity politics, we mean I- politics around gender and race, right, and sexuality. Course, yes. like that's my identity. Uh, but I think it's, it's you're definitely right that uh, a person's identity has become way gl- more glued and strongly fixed to their party at a level that probably has uh, not been seen. And uh, hearing podcasts by political scientists and reading some of their papers, uh, they're not even talking about that. It's not even just partisanship, just liking your team, but disliking the other team. Right. Like just just kind of like a built in hatred of the other side being the thing that motivates motivates you. So that what that means is that your party can do whatever it wants. Long as it keeps the right uh, you know, uh jersey on for the game, you'll always cheer for it. And that allows the the uh the politicians from that party to do all kinds of things in terms of policy. You saying that right there brought to mind a picture I saw. This was around the time when when the discussion of Trump and the Russian collusion was a big thing. Not going to get into that right now, but all that to say that's the context of what I'm about to say. There there was actually someone a photo was taken of them at a rally. I forget the exact wording on their shirt, but it said something along the lines of I'd rather be a Russian collaborator than a democrat. And this right. was like and this was somebody at like a, a Republican rally obviously. So I think that's kind of pretty much to your point. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's really kind of a shocking thing because normally when we think about politics, we think about policy issues. Right. Right. And maybe in a particular circumstance, like if you're a city council and there's a particular policy that you're arguing over, then that's very specific. But a lot of like kind of mass retail politics is more about identities rather than policies. And you can see that in that each party may have only one or two policies that they've actually stuck with over the last 30, 40 years. Right. So, like, maybe abortion is, like, the one thing uh, that uh, has stayed constant as a distinguishing policy between the two parties. But everything else, they're drifting back and forth. It is very kind of uh, in flux and very fluid. Uh, But still, people are like, you know, I'm going to stick by my party. And once you understand that a lot of people are into um, uh, cheering for a team, picking a side, then that explains a lot of other things about politics. Uh, that are, would otherwise be quite mysterious, like, you know, the party in the street phenomena. Right. And, and, and well, as you said, and it's not just it's not only liking a side or liking or cheering for a team. It's also getting very personally offended if someone challenges your team. That is to say, you feel very embedded and very attached to this identity as right. as part of that team. OK, so to, to put sort of a, a cap on the timeline we were just drawing, uh, where do we stand today? The, obviously, you're, you know, your book talks about this, but let's do it now. So the anti-war movement, as we said, we went from hundreds of thousands to thousands to hundreds as of to this dozens. minute to dozens as of this minute. Where are we at ones? Yeah. So I think what I, I'm going to introduce a term that social movement researchers uh, like to throw around called abeyance. And abeyance means uh, is a fancy word for hibernation. So basically, all the people who are involved in the anti-war movement, they're hibernating in some way. Maybe they're sitting on the sidelines. Maybe they're waiting for another conflict to happen. Um, maybe they're uh, – the big thing about movements in abeyance is that often people who are in a movement will go to another friendly movement and hang out there. So uh, Verna Taylor up out in the University of California in Santa Cruz, I think, either Santa – no, Santa Barbara. You see Santa Barbara. You know, she came up with this idea when studying the women's movement. And she asked, what happened to all those activists between the first wave and the second wave of the women's movement in the 1920s and the 1970s? 
it's not like women's issues disappeared for 50 years. Right. Right. The issues didn't go away. Right. What they did was they started hanging around labor unions. Some of them became conservative activists or Republican Party activists. And then when the second wave of the movement kind of restarted, some of those people started coming out of the woodworks. So my hypothesis right now is that those people have uh, converted into Trump resistance protesters, March for Science, March for Women protesters. Uh, some of them are probably participating in BLM protests, maybe not as the leaders, obviously, but maybe as people who are chipping in in some way to make that movement work. So what's probably happening now is that uh, Trump has not started a war, thankfully. I'll give him some credit for not uh, starting or escalating any big wars. Um, I'll give him credit for that. But what that means is that there's not going to be a, a big movement to oppose wars that don't happen. Right. Right. So if Trump's not starting a big war, there's not going to be anti-war movement. So a lot of that, those kind of progressive activists are really going to be involved in BLM, Black Lives Matter, March for Science, Trump resistance. And one thing that I would love to see, and we're collecting the data now, not me, but other researchers in the field, is to see the overlap. Like, what is the overlap between the anti-war movement and the Trump resistance movement? Right. And maybe the BLM protests that happened uh, last week in the United States. Like, I bet there's going to be some interesting overlaps. They'll be very informative. Right. And actually, on that note, I did want to talk a bit about Black Lives Matter and everything we're seeing right now, like as of the day of this recording. So obviously, like, it's, it's going to be hard to tell what, what exactly will happen because only time will tell. And we're sort of just in the, in the beginnings of this. But I know it's hard to make predictions, but maybe more appropriately, I'm saying, how about you wonder aloud with me really where you, you think that could go? Because when we think of your model about the party in the street and, and that discussion, it seems that we may be, again, standing at this intersection where a, a social movement and a social idea overlaps with a party and perhaps into some action in terms of getting people elected, etc. I would hope, personally, I can say that what we don't see is what happened with the anti-war movement, which is there's a bunch of rah, rah, rah. And when it comes time for policy, little to be said for it. But do you see some of the same sort of beginnings of what you guys traced with the anti-war movement, perhaps? Yeah, that's that's a really uh, great question. And it's something I've thought about in the past couple of days, um, because people have asked, you know, why were why was this wave of uh, BLM protests so big, considering that police violence has been with us for decades, right? So maybe you haven't seen a protest this big since maybe the Rodney King protests of like 1992, I believe, right? Like it's been, it's been like 20 some years uh, almost 30 years since we've seen a protest around police violence uh, of that magnitude. And so uh, I think the obvious factors are one is the pandemic. Everybody's home and they may not be at work. Uh, they may be unemployed or they don't have to go to the office. So it's very easy for people to protest uh, in contrast uh, with a time where you have to go to work and you have all these other obligations. Number two, there's definitely a Trump component of this. Right. Right. Where I wouldn't be surprised if like a partisan animosity was a big thing. And so uh, those two factors are making this um, issue stand out more than it did before. Also, social media has been very big, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, like uh, lots has changed in the world of social media since 2001 to eight, even like it's crazy amounts of change. Yeah. Just like entire worlds of social media have been created. So then the question is, okay, well, that makes the movement get a lot of attention today. And then this is why I always tell people, which is that if you want long-term policy change, you have to take the next step, which is it's about more than a protest, more than Blackout Tuesday on an Instagram feed. It's really about saying, okay, well, if I'm really concerned about how police are treating people in my town, 
then, you know, what organization can I join or what action can I take to, to actually make that happen? Because the thing with policing is that it's a decentralized issue in the United States, right? So you just don't yell at Trump because Trump actually has very little power over police. Uh, they can issue federal guidelines. There can be civil rights lawsuits, but those are very clumsy, uh, very, uh, very, uh, very uh, inaccurate policy tools. Instead, the real change is going to happen at the city council level and the state level. More of a bottom-up so thing. It's, it has to be a bottom-up way because that's just the way policing is done in the United States. So then, um, so then they have to say, it's like, okay, we have the attention now for a week or two. Of those million people who showed up for our protests, maybe if 10,000 are super committed, can we turn them into an active group of citizens who could ask the police to be less violent, to be less racist, to use less force uh, when encountering people and to push city councils into adopting policies that will um, reduce uh, uh, police overreach in, uh, in our towns. Right. So that's the main thing for BLM, which is, okay, Trump is going to be gone sooner or later, right? And if you look at polls, the answer is he might be gone a little bit sooner than later. Uh, but still, police departments are still going to be there with similar policies and similar hiring practices and similar cultures. And they say, okay, well, when Biden is uh, president, uh, because I think there's a good chance he will be president, um, you know, the polls are, have been in his favor for like eight months in a row now. Um, that's no guarantee, but it does suggest that there will be President Biden, that this movement not give up because there is a democratic power to keep pushing no matter what. And it's interesting when you talk to BLM people who are like deeply involved in the movement, they understand that. Right. They understand that. Because you may, I don't know if you saw this up in Canada, uh, but uh, one thing that was interesting in 2016 is a lot of BLM activists actually protested Hillary Clinton because they they appreciated that um, the Democratic establishment has not has often dragged their feet on a lot of these issues regarding police. So right. I think the core of the BLM movement understands that you need to sustain the pressure. You can't just wait for your party to win. The pressure has to be kept up. But there's only so many BLM activists around, right? Like, how do you recruit a larger group of people, larger group of citizens that's going to keep pushing even when uh, their favorite guy is in power to make sure this change actually happens? And as you as you said just a little bit earlier, like that ultimately awareness is not – it's important, but it's one thing. It ultimately has to become action to some right. degree, and that's where the heavy lifting is. Our, our time has wound down completely now, Fabio, so let, let's just head to the formal wrap-up here. So in every episode, I want to make sure that the guest has the, the last word. So let, let me say to you that we've talked about a lot. It was a great conversation. Let's bring it full circle, try to put a finer point on the exploration of the question if we can. So let me ask you, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to here on what happened to the anti-war movement after 9-11? If I was to ask you, what's the one or two things that you want people to remember from this conversation? What are those? Yeah, so here's what the listener should take. If you're a movement and there's an issue you really, really care about, don't get married to a political party. They may leave you behind and your issue may not uh, be addressed. That's it. <laughs> Perfect. We'll leave it at that. Fabio Roas, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. 
Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. <laughs>